On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. I did mention it to, to Finchie. I said, if anyone could go out there, face their first ball in the last over and get us 14, it's probably Pat Cummins. Uh, he can do anything. And he does it. He does it quite regularly. I think. I think. Remembering um, UAE a few years ago, I think he came out and hit his first ball for six, and then we only needed one to win, and he hit it straight up in the air. And um, he, he got the job done tonight. But that was for him to keep a cool head. Hit hit a gap on the offside, and against a guy who hit three out of out of six Yorkers is just real good batting. And um, and Jai Richardson as well at the end. That was that was really good from a young young player to do that. And. I'm sure he would have loved the opportunity to bat with Pat as well at the end. and You can see their little cuddle at the end. It was beautiful. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas, and joining me for this episode of the show have Joe Barton. Joe, welcome back to the show. You were so upset about your snubbing during summer, I thought I'd get you in for two in a row. So yeah, welcome back. Not even a week's break between this one. Um, I've passed all the all the tests and here I am. You passed the cricket knowledge what test. What tests were they? Just, Just general tests, cricket general, knowledge. General fitness. <laughs> and the other dulcet tone you heard there is from Ben Horn, uh, Chief Cricket Writer for News Corp, who's been on a bit of a break. Welcome back, Benny. How are you? Good, thanks, Manners. Yeah, nice to be back in the studio. Now, my first day back at the, at the crease yesterday, and straight away with a scoop, you led with uh, Channel 9 rejecting Channel 7's offer to trade two Wimbledons for one Ashes tour. So Channel 9 have opted to televise the Ashes this year rather than potentially doing two Wimbledons. Yeah, and a uh, pretty smart call, I'd say, because it's going to be pretty good uh, television, I think, uh, the Ashes with... Smith and Warner making their comebacks to Test Cricket and the sessions will be starting at 8pm at night here in uh, Sydney, so uh, right in prime time. So yeah, I'd say it it doesn't sound like uh, it was a difficult decision for them to make. Just seems to me logical. I mean, one Ashes is worth more than two Wimbledons. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I guess it's longer. It's five, five times five, so twenty-five days. Um, that'd be longer than. Yeah. Longer than It'd be one about the same. Be, wouldn't be quite as long as two Wimbledon. But yeah, look, I mean, I, I guess where where it's interesting is that uh, the big swap had happened during the summer, where you know after forty years, nine no longer was uh, broadcasting cricket. It, it was now the home of tennis, and uh, seven had gone in, gone all in on, in on cricket. So you can understand why seven was keen to. Just uh, yeah, stack up even more cricket, but um, yeah, it just shows I suppose, despite um, you know having fairly uh, you know bit of falling out with uh, Cricket Australia and um, you know uh, deliberately choosing to go after tennis, it's not like uh, Nine missed out on cricket and then picked up tennis as a um, you know as a as a second prize. They actually purposefully went after se- uh, tennis. That was their strategy. So, yeah, it's interesting that, that Nine's elected to go with the cricket from that point of view, that they were you know willing to look elsewhere during the summer. 
And if Australia does well in this Ashes Tour, the ratings are going to be through the roof. It's going to be a bonanza to see us win our first Ashes series on English soil since 2001. I can, I can feel it. I can touch it. I think regardless, the, um, the interest is going to be pretty high, just especially for those first two tests with the return of Smith and Warner. I think the, the interest is going to be enormous uh, and the ratings will be huge. Whether, whether or not Australia does pull off the, uh, the impossible or the unlikely and, and, and uh, get their first series in quite a long time. I want to walk around the grounds in England and just record what the crowds say to Smith and Warner throughout the series and maybe even Bancroft if he gets the call up. Do you think it would be creative or would it just be uh, – because obviously the Aussie crowds are not that creative. They're just, they're just uh, more abusive. But do you yeah. think the Poms will bring some creativity to their sledges? I think there will be some creative songs. And I think there's also a pint index with this that the more pints, the less creative the sledges are going to become. Yeah, I imagine the uh, hardware stores will be selling out of um, sandpaper. Yeah, sandpaper. That, that seemed to be the the joke last year for the one dayers. So I'm sure uh, I'm sure there'll be a bit of that. Well, listeners, in today's podcast, the three of us are going to take you through Australia's dramatic T20 win in in, in India. We're going to read and react to Ian Chappell's hard hitting Sunday Telegraph column. Then we're going to discuss the week's cricket headlines, including some wonderful results from all around the world. And then we're going to bring it on home with the listener mail segment. So let's start off with a white ball victory for Australia. They've won the first game in the T20 series versus India. It's a two-game series. And that game had it all. I mean, for a T20 game, it's swung from... Momentum change from both sides uh, right throughout the, the game. What did you think, Bardo? Good game of cricket. Definitely a good game of cricket. Always good to see Australia get a victory. And who, who cares about the, uh, the summer of losses now that we've got the, the T20 wins r- racking up in India? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm noting on your, your notes here, we've, we've picked a very strong batting lineup, which uh, I think we're going to discuss in a second about no Alex, Alex Carey and there, Peter Hanscom coming in. I'm, I mean, Kerry is a very good T20 batsman as well, so we, I don't we can't discount. think he's had a great summer, though, T20 level Kerry. Big Bash League last year, I thought he was um, was very strong. Um, I'd say, yeah, you're right, his form down this year, probably a big reason why Adelaide kind of stunk it up. But um, Yeah, it was a big selection, so they picked Hanscom ahead of Kerry, which allows a fifth bowling option. Now, if you look at this bowling attack, it's Berendorf, Jai Richardson, Nathan Coulton-Isle, Pat Cummins and Adam Zampa. That's five specialist bowlers. I mean, Ben, did you like the look of that team with Hanscom performing dual roles? Well, it certainly worked from the bowling point of view. I mean, you pick five bowlers, you want them to do a good job and and they bowled them out for 126 or whatever it was. So certainly the bowlers um, uh, took their, upheld their end of the bargain. Um, Yeah, look, I mean, it showed great nerve from Australia to hold out and win in the end, but You'd like to be sort of comfortably chasing 126, and yeah, the, the sort of they they made pretty tough work of it for some some parts in the middle there. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I like the creative thinking in in uh, in the Hanscom selection, but yeah, I mean, I sort of looked at it yesterday from a World Cup 50 over point of view, and uh, yeah, to me that was the most interesting part of it. Just where does that leave Alex Carey? I mean. Um, yeah, I think it suggests that he's probably not as safe as what we might have thought he was before the tour begun. I mean, I'd expect Kerry to be keeping when the 50-over games start, but the fact that the first game of the tour they were willing to go with a non-specialist keeper um, has, has put Kerry on notice. Does Peter Hanscom's 
keeping hold up over 50 overs compared to a guy like Kerry, who, I don't know, mm. rightly or wrongly, regarded as probably the, the best gloveman in the country. It's a, it is a risk. I mean, I think even in this match, um, Hanscom might have missed a run out. It, it's a massive risk. I mean, yeah, like I'm sure Hanscom's kept in quite a number of 50 over games for Victoria, but he's not a specialist keeper and he's basically said that on the record. Uh, so, look, it is a risk. I mean, personally, if... Uh, if I was taking Kerry out of the side, I'd be putting Matt Wade into the 50-over team for the World Cup. And, it, yeah, that's probably what I would do. But, um, yeah, Hanscom, Hanscom's an interesting one because he's probably on a bit of a collision course with Steve Smith, I think, for one spot in the World Cup squad as it stands because I'm not sure you can carry both of them in the same squad of 15, certainly not the same 11. So this opens up a second opportunity, second bite of the cherry for Hanscom, and yeah, I, I, you know, I think, I think his chances of going to the Ashes as a second keeper certainly are alive and well as as well because he might not be a good enough keeper for Test cricket, but you know, I think you sort of just take your chances with that, and the, the unlikely chance that he does keep, you know, he sort of offers you an extra batting option. Yeah, I think Hanscom's a good keeper. He kept in a couple of big bash games and. He said his main concern is if he keeps for 50 overs and then has to bat after that, he needs to be fit enough to still be able to make a big innings batting at four or five and still be running between the wickets as hard as he would if he wasn't keeping. But he's naturally a very good government. He took a stumping in the big bash where he whipped the bales off and I think he had Jack Edwards out stumped. And, you know, it was such a quick bit of work by him. It, It shows he can do it, probably just needs a little bit more work. Uh, and, you know, consistent training with his keeping. Yeah, well, he's got uh, Brad Haddon there showing him the ropes, which, um, yeah, you couldn't get a better teacher than that. And uh, I think he did a bit of work with Haddon a couple of a couple of years ago as well because, yeah, the, the kind of interesting scenario is that the sa- exact same thing happened to Matt Wade on the one-day tour about, yeah, 18 months ago. Uh, and it was the beginning of the end for uh, for Matt Wade as an Australian keeper when he got replaced by the by this uh, part-timer, Hanscom. So, um, yeah, it's interesting times for Kerry. He's the vice-captain, so they've invested a quite a, a lot of effort in him and it sort of follows the theme of a couple of the other vice-captain like, choices this summer. It's like summer. a jinx. Yeah. Whether you get injured or get dropped. Yeah, I don't know about a jinx. It's just It just shows where Australia's at. Like, there's some really clear, mature leaders and Alex Kerry's an excellent uh, leader. You can you can tell that and I'm sure he'll be an excellent cricketer. But, the, you know, it's sort of almost putting the cart before the horse. Like, he hasn't yet established himself as an Australian player. He, he needs a 50 or, you know, he hasn't made a 50 in about 28 internationals now. So he, he really does need to make some runs. His captain needs a 50 as well. His captain, uh, again, out for, out for a duck, so. Yeah. Well, I just like the extra bowling option as well, more so than what it does to Kerry and Hanscom. But it, it, giving that fifth bowler just makes you, especially Australia with our strength is bowling at the moment, makes you more formidable. But let's look at this first T20. It's the first of two in the series before five one days. Uh, India got off to a flying start. They were two for 69 after 8.4 overs. Then Virat Kohli got out and they slumped to seven for 126. We had the extraordinary situation where MS Dhoni wasn't taking runs at the end of a T20 innings. He was farming the strike. He wasn't actually hitting the ball that well. He'd have been better off taking the runs. Dhoni does this all the time, though. More more often he does it in chases where India, and he like, he's actually a master and a genius at being able to time a chase to the end. But sometimes that just means that he 
makes a chase, extends a chase until the last over, and then you, you go. Good for God, he's, he's a genius at uh, at timing this run chase. But um, when you're trying to pick up quick runs towards the end of a T20, especially when you're setting singles. a target, when you're setting a target on a wicket which they, which everybody agreed afterwards was quite hard to score runs. You can't be knocking them back. No way. And then uh, in in reply, Australia were flying along. Just looked like they were going to reel in this target with ease. But then Maxi got out, Glenn Maxwell, to make the score three for 89. Then there was a middle order collapse. And it came down to Jai Richardson and Pat Superman Cummins needing 14 off the last over. And they both hit a boundary in the last over. And they both finished seven not out of three deliveries. It came down to two off the last ball. And Pat Cummins did the business easily, just nudging it down the ground. A couple of things to note from Australia's innings. Finch batted at three and Stoinis and Darcy Short opened. I just didn't like that at all. I think Finch is such a good T20 opener. I don't know why he'd mess with that. Yeah, look, they um, they made that mistake a couple of years ago. Tried to flirt with... Um using different openers to Finch. But as Bardo touched on before, I mean, that is the biggest issue confronting um, the World Cup planning at the moment is Aaron Finch's form. Um, I think they will, and they should, back him right until the last available moment because he he's desperately needed in the squad. I mean, he's the captain, I mean, just and they don't have you. other choices. He's having such rotten luck. He gets run out at the non-strikers end in the Big Bash final, and this game is out. First ball, LBW, and they did the DRS, and the ball was just clipping the stump, so he just can't take a trick. Sorry, continue. Put your bat in front of it, and you won't get uh, <laughs> you won't get out LB, though. Yeah, for you to say. Oh, look, it's a long... Um, yeah, it's a, it's a concerning drought, I would say, um, particularly because... I think there is a bit of a feeling that his venture into test cricket may have affected things for him. Yeah, so it is a concern, but they have to back uh, Aaron Finch, both because of what he's capable of, but also because... He's a captain. He's a captain, and, and there is... You know, we've just talked about Alex Carey. He's just been dropped from the yeah. T20 side. They're, they're, you know, they, need, they need Aaron Finch to, to lead the side. They need some stability in, in leadership roles. And also, Finch does have a very good record in, in England um, in white ball cricket. And, so. and yeah, very familiar with David Warner as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But if he if you goes through this one-day series in India without, without posting a big score, there'll be massive, massive question marks over whether Australia can carry a bloke who's... Like, I mean, Australia's batting has not been good enough in the past 18 months to carry a guy at the top of the order who's not scoring runs. I sort of go back to the 2016 World 2020. Uh, Australia went in without... Uh, Finch was, at that point, ranked the number one T20 batsman in the world, and, he, and Australia left him out for the first couple of matches um, in preference of, uh, I think, Kawaja and Shane Watson opened and David Warner batted three or four. And it backfired uh, in the sense that Australia basically lost a couple of games and were effectively out of the tournament by the time Finch came back in. And he made runs as soon as he came back in. Um, there's been a couple of other occasions where Australia's flirted with dropping him or have dropped him for a couple of matches from the one-day side. And it hasn't um, gone well. You know, other players haven't taken the job. And then when Finch has come in, he's sort of proven he should be there. So I, I think, yeah, look, I, I would be sticking with Aaron Finch for the World Cup. But as Joe says, the longer it goes on, the, the bigger question it becomes. There you have it. If Ben Horn was a selector, he would be sticking with Aaron Finch. Darcy Short, 37 of 37 deliveries, just continues to prove my theory that he's not ready for international cricket yet. Uh, Glenn Maxwell, 56 of 53 balls. Sorry, 56 of 43 balls. It was a great innings there. And in the end, his 56 was crucial because no one else looked like scoring any runs.
All right, so uh, one nil in the series to Australia, one more to play, so they actually can't lose this uh, T20 series. And uh, if they were to win the second game, it would be their first white ball series victory since the tri-series, which is right at the end of last season when Warner was captain. So that's how long ago it was. So fingers crossed they can get a, a victory. Series concludes early Thursday morning Australian time. All right, let's move on to our next segment today, Read and React. And uh, Ian Chappell has written a hard-hitting column from the last Sunday Telegraph, and he starts off with this question. When, and more importantly, why did number three become the poison chalice of international batting positions? When I grew up, it was the prime batting position. Now, he goes on to talk about the fact that he thinks Steve Smith and Joe Root should both bat at number three, during the Ashes, uh, why do you think now there's this trend to have your best player at four? Uh, look, I'm not sure. I guess there's there's a few theories there. Um, in terms of the Australian side, I guess one is that uh, Usman Khawaja does appear to be better suited the higher up he is, uh, whereas Steve Smith's done just as well, if not better, at four. Um, so in terms of the team balance, that's one consideration for Australia. But um, look, Steve Smith hasn't been opposed to batting three. He batted three in India in 2017 when Australia, you know, went within, you know, a whisker of causing an upset over there and he made, I think, 300s yeah. in that series. So obviously different conditions to what they'll face in the Ashes. But I guess the basic theory is you want you want to try and protect your best player from the swinging new ball is the basic theory, I guess. But, um, you know, I can see the, the angle that Ian Chappell's coming out too that, you know, you might as well attack it with a positive mindset. So I know, like, across the, across the world... India obviously has Virat Kohli who bats at four as well. So, but they've got Pajara who is seems just like a world class natural number three. And if you're talking about historically, I mean, where did Sachin Tendulkar back primarily? He had Raul Dravid batting at three. So it's not it's not just an entirely new concept to have great batsmen who also bat at four. I mean, Greg Chappell batted quite a lot at, at four as well. So I mean, just because Don Bradman and Ricky Ponting and those kind of guys. Ian Chappell obviously batted at three. <laughs> he wanted to bat at three. I mean, it suits certain players, but like if you look at the stats, Steve Waugh averages an extra 10 when he bats at four compared to three. Um, yeah. It's the same for Joe Root. It's the same for Virat Kohli. Like if, and if you want to get the most out of who are clearly your best players, the stats show that well, they should be batting in certain areas. I think there is an ar- a serious argument for um, both Smith and Root batting up. I mean, if you look at England... Root is far and away their best batsman, and, and they really their one big weakness is is the top of the order. They just don't seem to be able to find anyone. So, well, Chapel says it's a dereliction of duty for Root not to be batting at three. Mm. Well, yeah, based on how they've um, how they eating stuff from Chapelli, how they've gone. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that, that would make sense. So, like, just get Root in there and um and you know take the bull by the horns. I mean, with Steve Smith, you know, he's coming back after a year out. So I guess there's a bit of uncertainty about how he's what his form's going to be like and all that kind of thing. I mean, Australia does have a lot of players who are, I guess you could say, adept to batting five and six, and not many who are um, real top order players. So from that same point with of, England. So from that point of view, you could see Smith move up to three, possibly just simply to um, you know fit in another player who really can't bat any higher than five. Yeah, Chapel thinks that uh, Root and Smith can give their teams a psychological boost by batting up the order, and they can also set up the pattern of play. You know, it's better to come out at one for 20 rather than two for 20 because, you know, you can take control of the game. However, I'd rather have Steve Smith coming in at two for 20 than 
Sean Marsh coming in at 2 for 20 and Steve Smith's already on his way back. So If, if, if Sean if, Marsh is coming in this Ashes, <laughs> I'm going to be very upset at all, Joe Barton. Fair. But yeah, bad example. But I get your point. No, I get your point. So let's look at Steve Smith's average at three. He just averages 67 at three, Steve Smith. And then he averages just 74 at four. And he averages 62 at five. So really, Steve Smith can bat anywhere. So it doesn't really uh, matter if he's at I mean, three or four. I don't get the feeling that Smith... I think you could argue that maybe um, Joe Root is dodging the number three spot, but yes. I don't think you can say that about Steve Root Smith. running scared. Smith's played enough at three, and um, and he's been out for a year. So yeah. I, I think I, I honestly think Steve Smith would bat wherever he feels is best for the team. I know that sounds like a cliche, but I actually don't think he's scared of um, of batting high. No, I don't think so either. Chappell also makes the point that when they moved uh, Smith to four, it was to give Kawaja a clear run at the number three spot, but that Kawaja's been inconsistent at number three. And then uh, we've got all the stats here. Aussie number threes since Ponting's last test in December 2012. So Kawaja's played the most innings, 52 innings, averaging just over 40 with six centuries. So it's a pretty handy record for a number three. I'll just give you a, a run through of the other players that have batted three. Shane Watson, Phil Hughes, Alex Dolan, Ed Cowan, Marnus Lobashane, Travis Head, David Warner, James Faulkner, Mitch Marsh, Nathan Lyon, Sean Marsh, Glenn Maxwell, Peter Siddle, and Michael Clark. So obviously a few um, night watchmen's there. But yeah, I think Root's probably the one that really needs to move up the order. If, if Australia wants to keep Kawaja at three, that's well, fine. Well, yeah, it sort of really comes down to whether Kawaja's in the 11. Uh, simple as that. If he's not in the 11, then I think Smith probably has to bat at three. Chappell also uh, said that Clark's, Michael Clark's flat-out refusal to bat at three was even more perplexing than either that of Smith or Root. So very hard-hitting stuff from Ian Chappell about the number three position. I hope Joe Root is listening to this, because if he is, I think he'll be moving himself up the order. What do you think, Bardo? Yeah, look, I, I know he's a big fan of the show, so hopefully he's tuned in and uh, hopefully Australia can find out a way to get him out early as well. And just, find, don't, just don't put this out at the same time Ellen's on. No, <laughs> I won't. Yeah. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, Chapel finishes with, blessed with two very strong attacks, the upcoming Ashes series will be won by the team that has the fewest top-order collapses. If one team seizes the initiative by reassessing the importance of the number three position, it could be the positive step that clinches the urn. Well... So this number three thing could decide the ashes. We wait and see with much anticipation. Do you think he's overstating it there a bit, Chapelli? No, I mean, I think definitely his point about the um, the fewest top order of the collapses just speaks for itself, really. Like, look at the, the most recent um, ashes victories that England have had on home soil, and it's pretty much come down to what one or two, basically just one, one batsman each series that's really been able to push those scores to 300 and mm. then you've had Stuart Broad or Jimmy Anderson rolling Australia for 150 and that's ma- that's made the difference it's it's been if Australia, Australia has needed one guy like Smith or Warner or whoever to to get those multiple 50s um, throughout the series and we haven't been able to do that if either team does that that's going to be the I mean we, we, we know that both bowling attacks are world class if either team has one guy who can average 70 throughout the series that's going to be enough Three three hundred is the new four hundred in Test cricket now, isn't it? I mean, if you not, not a, in Australia, but pretty much anywhere else. Yeah, yeah if you put up a total of three hundred, you're going to be right in the game, I think. And I mean, obviously that's a big factor. I think Australia's bowling is going to be a huge factor too, because there's no reason why Australia shouldn't. 
dominate with the ball, but uh, it hasn't really worked out that way the last couple of tours, even though Australia's bowlers are amongst the best in the world. Just mastering the conditions over there has proved difficult. So it, there's a, it's a huge challenge for the likes of Josh Hazelwood and, and, and uh, Mitchell Stark, I guess, in particular, having toured there before. And then Pat Cummins in his first tour uh, playing in England. That that there's that's a huge uh, part of the equation too for mine. Did because, you because you know what Jimmy Anderson's going to do? Did you cover the 2015 Ashes, Ben? Certainly did. So when you were in the um, Trent Bridge press box and Australia collapsed to be all out for 61, how how was it? Well, it was quite frantic because it was uh, we could still make the deadlines back here in Australia. So. Um, yeah, I didn't really see a whole lot of it. I was just um, riding frantically. But, um, yeah, look, having sat through the all-out for 47 in Cape Town, I guess I wasn't as uh, <laughs> <laughs> <so> shocked <laughs> as others might have been. But, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing, yeah, amazing start to, to the test match. And it was, yeah, it was incredible to watch. Yeah. I, was, I was living in London at, the point, at that point. I remember watching the first couple of overs. Australia was one, one down. And I was working that day, so by the time I got to work, which was literally 20 minutes on the tube, Australia was eight down. And I was like, this is a pretty concerning day of test cricket for Australia. (laughs) Absolutely, indeed. Very concerning. Well, nothing like that is going to happen this year, I hope, to the Australian test side. There's no game at Trent Bridge, is there? (laughs) Well, there's no game at Trent Bridge. (laughs) Thanks for that, ECB. Yeah, well done. All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with the week in cricket headlines. Uh, just before we go, I want to remind you, if you have time, please rate and review the podcast on whatever app you listen to the show on. If you want to write an iTunes review and then uh, email it into ozcricketpod at gmail.com, I'll read it out on the show. I guess it's nice. Like I, I think, for me, to be honest, it's just a number. Um, I've never really worried too much about it. Like I, I really love my role and um, I guess job in the team, and and that's to contribute with the bat and ball and whatever that is doesn't really bother me too much. I mean, sure, it's it, it's cool to, to to say now that I've scored 100 for Australia, but um, you know, in the scheme of things, it's it's not a huge deal for me to be honest. You're listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm here with Joe and Ben, and that was Elise Perry speaking after Australia's series win against New Zealand in the 50-over Rose Bowl series. And let's get into the headlines brought to you by Sydney's The Daily Telegraph. So let's start. Australia have uh, won the first two matches of their three-match 50-over series against New Zealand. The first match was a tight affair, Australia winning by just five runs. But in the second match, Elise Perry scored her maiden one-day international century and Australia won by 95 runs. Uh, Perry was on 97 when she smashed the ball out into the outfield and the New Zealand fielder tried to take the catch, but it burst through her hands and went for four. Should have been caught, that one. Rushed in off the boundary, Made a meal of it. But what struck me about Perry is when she was talking, she's so humble. She says, oh, you know, making a century didn't mean that much to me. I just don't believe her. I mean, she's so competitive. She's driven. I mean, if you ever watch her play, she's desperate to win and do well in every game. So it must mean something to her. But, yeah, just a tremendous performance by her. And Jess, uh, Jess Jonathan as well. Yeah. Career best figures. Um, what she got? Five for... 
Five for not much. Five for 27 and four for 43 uh, in the two games. So that's pretty good stuff from Jess. Um, so that was the international one-day series. Australia played the last game this weekend, and then they go on a bit of a break. So a long summer for the Australian women's team. They kick things off at the beginning of summer at North Sydney Oval, and they'll finish it this weekend. It's quite a big gap, isn't it, between the second and third game? I was looking at that today, thinking the match would be today or tomorrow, but um, I suppose it makes sense to maximise on the weekends. But, yeah, it's basically a week between, between games two and three. They probably could have fitted in five games. All right, so let's get on to the... Sheffield Shield action. It is a ding-dong battle in the Sheffield Shield. You've got so many plot lines. You've got a tight ladder with basically the top five sides on the Shield ladder vying for the finals. But then playing out above all this is the spots for the Ashes. There are so many batsmen and bowlers desperate to perform well in these last four rounds. Now, uh, I was lucky enough to commentate the first day of New South Wales v Western Australia. So I saw the Dukes ball up close and it certainly makes a, a subtle difference to the action. It stays harder for longer. It swings around a bit. And uh, yeah, I think it, it's a good positive change to the competition using the Dukes ball sometimes. It just seems to maintain its shape for longer. And does, did it do more through the air? Was yeah, it, was it swings it more. Well? Uh, there wasn't much in the pitch at Bankstown, but even after 40, 50 overs, you can see the ball is still swinging around a bit. Yeah, look, it, I mean, it's it adds an interesting uh, layer, I suppose, to uh, what what you take from the performances in these matches, whether there's there's uh, more merit to them because they are using a Duke's ball. Um, yeah, look, one, one player that's caught my eye who's, um, yeah, I guess not, at the top of the list with guys like Matt Wade and Bancroft and these type type of guys is uh, Michael Nessa from Queensland. Um, he made 75. I haven't actually looked at the latest scores, but, you know, he's a basically a frontline bowler, but he's averaging over 60 with the bat this, this summer. And, you know, with the, I guess, the absence of really standout all-round options, interesting if uh, Michael Nessa could sneak in there as he a... He went um, to the UAE tour. Mm. with the Australian squad, yep. so he can't be far away. And he's, he has, I think he's played one-day cricket now for Australia. Uh, okay, so New South Wales VWA. So some notable performance. Cameron Bancroft, in his return to first-class cricket after the sandpaper ban, carried his bat, making 138 not out. Trent Copeland took four for 81. Stephen O'Keefe took four for 78, and Curtis Patterson backed up his testaboo with 134, and Peter Neville made 101 not out. So I guess all five of these players are in the discussion for an Ashes spot, but I guess the notable one was Cameron Bancroft in in what must have been a very sort of anxious moment, making his return to first-class cricket. He kicked, you know, 138 not out. He kicked 138 not out. What do we? Where 40 do, not out now. Where where do we well, kind of even rule him? Like, it, it, would you consider him a dark horse or like one of the? Like, if he if he gets two more centuries in the last three games, like he's he's a JL guy. He's I reckon he's almost a front runner if he if he gets another couple of centuries. Well, certainly, um, if he makes yeah, if if he performs in another game or two, you'd have to think he's going to make the Australia A side, uh, which then puts him over in English conditions and chance to to get. To, to get more runs on the board. Look, I mean, he is coming from a fair way back because Joe Burns made 180 in the last test and, you know, as, as unlucky as Joe Burns has been at the selection table over the years, it's going to take a fair lo- fair bit for him to get trampled out of the way, I, I would I would think. 
and Marcus Harris has just 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 made ninety five as well, just quietly. So um, yeah, look, it's it, it's a competitive field, I guess, with only you know maybe one spot available, two spots available. So yeah, you can't rule him out because you know the, the, he has a good relationship with the coach and. You know, he, he was obviously good enough to play test cricket beforehand. And if they're allowing Steve Smith and Dave Warner to come back, then the same rule should absolutely apply for Cameron Bancroft as well. So that shouldn't count against him in, in, in any way once he's, um, you know, once he's back in the frame. So it'll be an interesting one. Um, I'll tell you what, it's um, it's it's getting close to curtains for uh, Matt Renshaw, though, I'd say. That's that's the yeah. that's the one thing, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think he could be in... Willed for him to, to make Aussie runs. A-side, though. Yeah, he could. Yeah, Australia's willing for him to get there, but he he just just hasn't made that big score. Cameron Bancroft puts a high price on his wicket. He really does sell his wicket very dearly. It is strange watching him bat. His technique, Bancroft, and I felt this at test level that you know he seems to fall across to the offside a lot, and I just wonder if he'll keep getting exposed like that in test cricket. In the other game, Victoria v Queensland, uh, some of the Front runners for the Ashes spot, Renshaw made 29, Burns made 60 in the first and 80 in the second, Marnus Lubbershane 59, Marcus Harris made 95 for Victoria, Nick Madison made 108 for the Victoria, that's two centuries in a row for the Vicks, and should say all these games are still going on while we, we record this, so the players could add to this their performances, and in the final game of the round, South Australia taking on Tasmania, Travis Head made 50. And I think he backed it up with another 50 in the second innings. Jackson Bird, the forgotten bowler in Australian cricket, took four for 53. And he was definitely on the 2013 Ashes Tour. He might have been on the 2015 as well or might have no, been injured. No, just 2013, yeah. So he's had experience in England. Matty Wade moved up the order and batted at four, made 77. And uh, Charlie Wakim on debut for Tasmania made 160, who's not an Ashes contender, but uh, a 27-year-old debutant. Yeah, it's a long time coming. And he, another uh, one he, that's moved from New South Wales. He made the most of it. Very well done. Jackson Bird is an interesting one because he's exactly the sort of guy that we always say is going to do well in England. But you'd think he's quite a long way behind, and especially when you've got four pacemen. Yeah, who I mean are the, the difficulty in, for all so. these guys who there, there is literally only one spot yeah. realistically available for the bowlers unless an injury takes place. So you've got Peter Siddle. And Dan Worrell, who has a lot of people talking about him, although, Copes. although he's got to get back on the field. Dan Worrell, I mean, he's got to actually play. Yeah. And uh, James Pattinson, if he's fit, Trent, Trent Copeland, Tremaine, Tremaine, yeah, Boland, uh, Nessa, as we mentioned before, is another one. So you got eight blokes going for one yeah, spot. There's, there's, it's, yeah, that, that's going to be quite a big call. So the selectors are going to hope that someone really just. It just really feels like, though, out. the wheels turned a little bit. At the beginning of the summer, we were desperate for some players to put their hand up, and, and it didn't really happen. But now it seems like some players are starting to score consistent runs and starting to knock the door down, which is what Justin Langer said uh, when he took over the job. He wanted players to knock the door down and force their inclusion. Yeah, Can- certainly. I mean, you've still got to... Ke- I know Sri Lanka's just beaten South Africa, but yeah, there, there needs to be a bit of perspective, I suppose, that you know, Australia didn't really have anyone standing up against India at all. And, and um, you know, then then everyone came out of the woodwork against Sri Lanka. And and that's not to take away from the performances of those players who did, because, um, you know, you'd rather that than, than nothing. But, but yeah, look, Australia can't get too carried away and think that they're suddenly flush with, with options, because I don't think it's quite at that level yet 
but certainly, I'm getting carried away. Certainly, uh, bowling wise, I, I think we've got the ashes in the bag already. Just just put the ashes series in the bag right now. Cameron Bancroft was interviewed on ABC Grandstand the day he made his return to first class cricket, and uh, he made some interesting comments. This is what he said about his interview that he did on Boxing Day before his return to the Big Bash. And there was some criticism from uh, players like Ricky Ponting and Michael Slater, former players, sorry, who didn't like Bancroft speaking on Boxing Day. And this is what Bancroft said in response on ABC Grandstand. I felt like I had some really important learnings that I wanted to share, which is why I wrote my letter, which was published in the West Australian, and did the interview with Gilly because I felt like there were some really powerful lessons in my journey and I wanted others to connect and share with it. What's your reaction to that, guys? Well, I, I don't think he, he fully realises why um, he copped the criticism for the interview with um, with Gilchrist, but he is right in saying that, you know, it's sort of a no-win situation, isn't it? I mean, he, he's he's coming back to test cricket, sorry, to, um, to top-class cricket in Australia. He's obviously going to have to speak and you know he was probably going to be judged on on whatever he said so look he was in a tough position but yeah look yeah I think some of the reasons why people reacted poorly to uh to that interview I don't think he's fully grasped that I think a lot of it was the timing of it so it happened during the Boxing Day test and it's meant to be the biggest day on the Australian cricket calendar the Boxing Day test and I think there was there was a bit of people saying, well, why are you dragging the attention away from the actual on-field cricket? You're making it about uh, things that we don't even want to think about. We don't want to remember. But his his counter to that is his ban ended when it ban- when it ended. He didn't have any choice over when it, over it ending. You know, in the middle of the Boxing Day test. So mm. I can understand his reasoning for for why that, that happened. And I, I can't remember how did did he go to Gilly or did Gilly go to him to um to tee up that sort of interview because he that, went to Gilly. So if he went to Gilly, then I guess yeah, his his point being that he had to speak at some point. He was going to have to. They, he was going to get handed, and he probably had been handed for the best part of nine months to speak. But um, yeah, I mean, it, really, it definitely did, left did a bad taste. Did any of you get the impression after, that there were some really important learnings that he had to share? Probably not. I mean, uh, let's be honest. There was a lot of hippie stuff that I, that kind of went over my head. To be fair, but. They were important to him, and they ne- he needed to get them off his chest. And I, I think he's in it was has been in a dark place at various points. So perhaps they were important learnings, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't come away from it feeling that enlightened. Yeah, I just sometimes when Bancroft speaks, he, he seems kind of in this weird bubble or something. Like, so when he said in the original interview on Boxing Day, oh, I felt like I was in a no-win situation because if I said no to the sandpaper, I was damaging the team's chances of winning. The game. I mean, that just seemed kind of blind to the situation, even in hindsight. The bubble. I mean, the bubble is elite sport, and the the bubble of the the dressing room. I I, I actually do understand him saying I was in a no win situation because he's a rookie, effectively a rookie, being put into an awful kind of scenario where if he says no, he's the devil amongst his teammates, or at least one teammate or two teammates, depending on whose version of events you believe. And if he says yes, he's the devil to the wider population of the cricketing world. But the the opinion of those closest to him probably meant as much as anything that was going to happen outside at the time. He also said to ABC Grandstand, all of us, including Dave, have all been really challenged through this period of time. And I know that all three of us have really stuck by each other and looked after each other well. I mean, yeah, yeah. This, that, I mean was, that was certainly one reaction from people was that he sort of, 
throwing David Warner under the bus. Um, but now they're best buds. It's all right. Yeah. But the you know the, the what what we've seen is that I guess whatever path that these guys have chosen to go down with speaking hasn't necessarily gone to plan, and and Dave Warner's approach of not speaking at all is is proven the winner so far. So, yeah, look, it's it's a tough one. Um, He's been well advised, Warner, from the beginning. Yeah, it's you know it'd be interesting. Like, I mean, I guess Bancroft's. I don't think um, you would say a naturally gifted public speaker or anything. So, I mean, he's he's his best um, impression is going to be making runs as he's doing right now. But he is such a candidate for writing a self help book in the mould of Justin Langer. Yeah, you know, the Bancroft way or something. You say he's not a gifted. A picture of him like doing a yoga pose by yeah. the water. Yeah, you might say he's not a gifted public speaker, but he's. His first kind of introduction to the Australian public was that that first press conference at the Gabba and after the yeah where he discussed the headbutt and he had you know half the half the world in stitches and England wasn't laughing quite so much but yeah I thought he came across brilliantly there um, so public speaking I don't think he's that bad. All right, now let's move on to our next cricket headline: Afghanistan are breaking records in T Twenty cricket and be ready because. Australia's opening World Cup opponent in a 50-over game are going to be Afghanistan, and they could be a banana skin for Australia in the World Cup. Afghanistan playing Ireland have made the highest ever T20 international score, making two for 278. Zazai made a whopping 162 not out of just 62 balls with 16 sixes. Uh, that's the second highest T20 individual score behind Aaron Finch's 172 made last year. So that's the first game of this, or the second game of the series. If that wasn't enough, in the next game, Rashid Khan takes four wickets in four balls. So are you guys nervous now about Australia facing Afghanistan? Hadn't given it a second's thought before now, but um, look, upsets happen at the World Cup, I suppose, and um, those kind of games are danger matches. We saw at the last World Cup, England lost to. Bangladesh? Correct. Knocked them out of the cup. Great yeah. day. So, yeah, you never know, especially a team that might be down on confidence or a little bit knocked around. So, How um, good is this Afghanistan team? I mean, they're, the, the they've most got ex- their yeah. dazzling leg spinner now. They've got a big-hitting top-order batsman. The, 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 it's a the war-torn ex- country. The exciting part of it is that they're all 19 or 20. It's mm. a, potentially in five years we're looking at one of the more dangerous teams in world cricket at any you know amongst any company. So they've got five mm. one-days against Ireland now. Then they play a one-off test, which I'm really excited about. Afghanistan-Ireland, I reckon that'll be a cracking test match. And they're playing all these games at a place called, the pronunciation could be wrong here, but Dera Dun in India's north. So that's the Afghanistan's home ground because they can't play at home. Mm. All right, the next cricket headline. We are going around the world because it's been a stunning week of results. Sri Lanka have beaten South Africa by eight wickets in the second test of their series to win the series 2-0. They became the first Asian side to win a test series in South Africa. And Faf Duplessis, after the, the series loss, said, it's probably up there with the most disappointing series loss ever, certainly from my own personal point of view and also from a team perspective. But what a result. Sri Lanka... From leaving here humiliated, they just smashed South Africa. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. E- either test, I, I thought they would. I thought the the um, South Africans would come back hard in the second test, and they just didn't. It shows just goes to show the value of AB de Villiers in that in that side. If AB de Villiers doesn't play against Australia last last year, I think Australia probably wins that series. They probably win the second test where 
De Villiers really took it away from Australia. He's an unbelievable player. Take him out, and yeah, they're they're beatable and well well played to Sri Lanka, and, and particularly coming off the back of a week in which um, the West Indies had beaten England in their own Test series. Um, love love seeing two of the teams that have been beaten up over the past couple of years, past decade in uh, West Indies and Sri Lanka getting huge results, which will mean a lot to them. It's um it's an incredible performance and um you know the coaching staff deserve a lot of credit because I mean how much of this would have had to have been just their their I guess psychological approach. I mean they'd been absolutely smashed in Australia. The captain got sacked, absolute turmoil going on in Sri Lankan cricket. Uh, so Corruption with, inquiry. So with all that going on uh and, and playing in, in foreign conditions, um no matter which, you know, no matter, you know, De Villiers might be missing, but, you know, you, you look at the quality of the South African bowling attack in, in their own conditions. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is staggering. a staggering performance. I yeah. mean, that, you can see them, the first test was a miraculous win on the back of Pereira's fantastic innings, but then to back it up and win the, the next test match was phenomenal. And I think we, ent- we are in a golden period of test cricket. You know, the West Indies have beat England. Sri Lanka have beat South Africa. India won their first series in Australia. England beat Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka. I mean, we're just seeing now this this mould of away sides not being able to compete reversing. And, and we're seeing more competitive test series, which the game was absolutely crying out for. And, you know, it's fantastic leading into the test championship now that we're going to have a real sort of ding-dong battle for the in the test championship yeah hopefully it's setting up for a big ashes series because that would really ignite things if it's a you know throwback to 2005 or something like that where it goes right down to the last test um that would be terrific for for the game overall because even though there's only two countries competing the ashes is still i think the other countries are watching that as well, so that that would be a big, um, yeah, big uh, kickstart as well. It is the showpiece event. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, then we'll be back with the listener mail segment. Uh, if you want to find me or the podcast on Twitter, where I'm at Amenas at A M E N E R S, or the podcast is at Oz Cricket Pod. We're also on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Coming up after the break, we will have listener mail and a little bit of me commentating on the Sheffield Shield. But now Conway comes back into the side and Greg West is 12th man. Yeah, we've had a message from Justin. Uh, loving the coverage from VZAG, mate. Best service in the world from you. Send my best to Dunny. So Conway into Bancroft. Bancroft leaves... So ball goes through to Neville. Justin, they are the uh, Australian coach, loving the coverage. So uh, was that the, Justin Langer? Was it sending in a yeah. message? Well, Colin, Colin Minton knows everyone in Western Australia. Good afternoon, Justin. So great to see and to you. the Australian team. I'm sure that all the Australian team would be glued to the Shield action. Hopefully. I mean, most of the Western Australian sides over there in the one-day tour. So. A few New South Wales players as well, so probably makes up more than half the squad. Here's Conway, worked onto the onside, out through mid-wicket for just the one. Two for 133, so Bancroft adds another to his total. Left Jack speechless. He did. Are you nervous because Justin Langer might be listening? I'm nervous just being around you, I think. Just the, just the aura that you exhibit. <laughs> such a famous uh, podcaster such as yourself. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> and we're back at the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. That was myself and Jack Clifton out of Bankstown Oval. 
for the first day of the Shield match. And now it is the listener mail segment inspired by Justin Langer messaging in during the Shield match. Do you know if uh, Justin listens to this podcast as well or is it just your, your fine work on the uh, New South Wales and West Australia game? I'm not sure if Justin's uh, listening, but if he is, uh, please, Justin, just send me a message to let me know you're a, a listener. Pretty sure, though, cricket podcasts aren't the top of his uh, listening list. I mean, you'd have to push through the meditation podcasts. Mm. They'd probably take up a lot of time, and then he'd probably be into the ambient sort of forest sounds before he'd start listening to more cricket chat. I'm sure people can go to sleep listening to this one. Thank you, Joe. Um, I have heard that before, that some people say that they use this podcast to get to sleep. The listener mail segment. Let's start it off. First question comes from Stephen Vag. Who do you think will be the second spinner on the Ashes series? And he's put O'Keefe, Holland, Swepson, or someone else. Bardo, quick answer. Who do you think will be the next spinner? Uh, Who will well, be the second spinner on the Ashes? I think it'll be Manus Labuschagne. I think he'll be, he'll be the Get out. spinner. What do you need a backup? What about that trash he was bowling in the Sydney Test? What if? Nathan Lyons steps on a ball on the morning of an Ashes test. You want Marnus to be our spinner? To play four quicks. Yeah, oh, I'd be playing craziness. four quicks. I'd be taking Stephen O'Keefe. He's a ready-made, like-for-like replacement. Lyon gets injured, you just bring Socky in. I Look, I, I, I actually personally agree with Joe, but if you had to take a specialist second bowler, I'd probably take Swepson. Swepson took four wickets uh, in the first innings, and I believe John Holland has ripped through... Uh, Rip through Queensland. Neither of those have shown enough for test. Well, Swepson, I don't think he's played a test, has he? I don't think he no, has. No, he's not. He's been on a few tours, so no. There is no standout second the, person. That's I think the that's Stephen the, O'Keefe. The, the point is that the, the tier below Nathan Lyon is empty, and if he goes down, there's no one really you want to replace him. No, well, I think Socky could hold up an end. I'm going to stick to that one. All right, now Darth Mann has sent in a message in, a question. Will Wade be the Ashes... Second keeper, but Darth Man thinks he would take Neville because he's a better gloveman. So we, we spoke a bit, bit about this before for if they take a second keeper. Neville just scoring 100 couldn't have come at a better time, but I still think Wade's probably the front runner because they could play him as a batsman or a keeper. I think the front runner is probably still Carey, but I mean, personally, I would take Matt Wade, but based on their reluctance to pick him this summer. Yeah, I wouldn't have him as the front runner. Uh, I think he should be in consideration. But the the intriguing one for me is Peter Hanscom. Um, this I know it's T Twenty cricket, but his selection there uh, is is intriguing in terms of how they uh, they think they might be able to squeeze him in there. And you know, really, I mean, the way I would look at it is you, you're really trying to pick another batsman, sneak another batsman into the squad. But if you talk to the traditionalists like Ian Healy, who you know obviously know what they're talking about. They believe you just need to take your second keeper, and and if and if that's what the uh, parameters are, then it has to be Alex Carey. I think it would be wrong not to take Alex Carey if if they're looking for a second keeper. I think now. it's going to be a very fluid Ashes squad, as opposed to you know a static. This is our seventeen man squad. I mean, they're going to have the Australian A team playing over there, sort of leading into the Ashes, and I think they'll still be over there for the beginning of the series. So yeah, you can see players being pulled in off that who aren't in the squad. Bunch you know, the drop of a hat. There's a bunch of guys playing, playing county, county cricket. cricket. Matty Renshaw will be over there banging in runs. So Possibly with these positions like second spinner and things like that. But, I mean, I'm sorry, you still need to have stability about the squad. I mean, how many players do you need, seriously? I mean, if you've got 17 players in the squad, who else outside of there is going gonna, is gonna to win you a game? I mean, unless you're having injuries, I don't think you can be 
pulling players in and out. You need to have certainty about it. So, yeah, like, I mean, 17 players is a fairly big squad. 17 players should get you through five tests. Mm. So, Darth, man, no great answer there for you, but... uh, I would say Neville, Wade, Hanscom, Carey, the four vying for that spot. Okay, Smelsh has uh, sent in a comment following on from our stump mic discussion in the last podcast. He made the point that Trent Bolt was fined a quarter of his match fee for offering up an audible expletive. So that answers our question, Barter. Yeah, from it last does. Podcast. I don't write it. You don't rate the the fine. No, it's not. It's not his fault that the mics turned up. You, you just, if you're the broadcaster, you apologise and move on. So sorry you heard that, but uh, mm. that's what's going to happen if you have the stump mics turned up. Well, it just uh, sort of follows on from Tony Irish's point from Fika that you know there has to be some kind of parameters set out about the use of stump mics. All right, next listener mail from Adam Hassan. Hi, manners. I'm a big fan of the podcast and have been listening to it. For over a year now, as a Pakistani 16-year-old living in England, I find your podcast great in keeping me up to date with all the cricket going on in Australia, especially at this time of year. I'm almost as much of a cricket fanatic as you. I watch matches whenever I get a free moment at school, and this is the kicker, and well done, Adam, and even prioritise watching the BBL over eating my lunch. Excellent stuff, Adam. I'm not sure how healthy it is, but I applaud your dedication. And then he's, he's, he's asked a question. Why do you think it is that Sydney Thunder players hardly ever get a go for Australia? And my answer to that is because they're not good enough. What's your answer, Barter? Well, I mean, he's, when, he's when offered they were, up when, forward armour Chris Green and Callum Ferguson. When the Thunder won the, uh, won the title, as Ben noted before, they kind of rejigged the entire Australian <laughs> T20 team and it... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> almost ruined it. So that was when they had they they forced Watto and they shoehorned Watto and was he in at the top of the order? But at that point, was he looked like the best T Twenty batsman on the planet? So I'm mm. saying on form they get picked. There you go. Next one, uh, Tony Parks from Sacramento. Would you like to read this one out, uh, Joe? Uh, it's it's been cut off on my page. <laughs> <laughs> it says Hi Menas. I hope I spelt that right. <laughs> Hi Menas. Just wanted to say I've only discovered the podcast just before Christmas and absolutely love it. Apart from that, I just wanted to say regarding the US being the country that has the fourth most listeners of the show, I completely understand that due to the amount of expats here. But as an Englishman living in America, I have to say, sadly, I will be surprised if cricket is ever even slightly popular over here. I drink in a sports bar and having lived here for nearly three years, have never met anyone who has even the slightest clue about cricket. Most don't even know it's played with a bat and ball. I've I've got a good mate who lives in LA. Um, Aussie though or American? He is Australian. So if you want to, I mean, Sacramento is not that far, is it? It's just a short drive down the the highway. So if you you ever want to watch some some cricket with uh, Dave... (laughs) I'm sure I can put you two in touch. I just wonder if um, America will ever have its own T20 league. Well, realistically, I think Tony is correct that um, your only hope of really getting cricket into the US market, I think, is going to all the expats that live there. Um, I don't think you're going to take over the uh, broader sports market. It's already full. That's right. Uh, Listeners, thanks so much for downloading Cricket Unfiltered again. You know, so many Australian cricket podcasts just stop now because, you know, there's not as much stuff going. But we never stop here at the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. You should see the enthusiasm in the panellists when I said that. They're 
just dancing. With I'm joy. dancing. I'm currently dancing. Um, so Joe Barton, thanks for making uh, your second appearance on the show Mate, this month. Two, two for two in uh, in whatever year this is, 2019. And Ben, we'll see Horn. you next year. Thanks for <laughs> yeah, yeah, good good job. See you next year, Benny Horn. Thanks for coming back on the show and getting your mind around some cricket again. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up soon. Thank you. All right, listeners, that's been the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I've been your host, Andrew Mensel. I'm going to go now and sit with my two giggly um, panelists, and we'll be back next week with another podcast. <laughs> 